0: at orderct.com slash Easter24. The date, 1951. The setting. Holmesburg Prison, a correctional facility in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The occasion. The arrival of Dr. Albert Kligman, a renowned dermatologist from the University of Pennsylvania. The objective performing cutting-edge dermatological research capable of producing world-changing medicines. The outcomes speak for themselves. During his tenure at Holmesburg, Kligman developed a skin treatment eventually marketed as Retin-A. Described as a kind of miracle treatment for acne, it's the most commonly used medicine for addressing inflammatory skin conditions, which is why it's become a popular anti-aging drug as well. But beyond pimples and wrinkles, Retin-A is also incredibly effective at treating certain forms of leukemia. In fact, Retin-A is so effective at treating so many conditions that the World Health Organization now lists it as an essential medicine. Of course, none of this would have been possible without a massive pool of research subjects who were not only eager and incentivized to participate, but radically misinformed about the risks involved. Indeed, Each and every medical breakthrough at Holmesburg was achieved on the backs of the inmates, literally. When asked about his first impression upon entering the prison, Kligman's reply was part Dr. Frankenstein and part Dr. Moreau, but entirely horrific. All I saw before me were acres of skin, he said. It was like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. Dr. Kligman's work in that fertile field of flesh wasn't just cutting edge or ethically questionable. It was also immensely profitable for him, for the university, and for a number of major pharmaceutical companies. But the deeper the story goes, the more disturbing it becomes. It's no wonder the prison was eventually nicknamed the Terror Dome. Whether a guard, an inmate, or a researcher, no one who walked in ever came out the same. Take Leotis Jones, for example who died in 2018 at the age of 74. Jones suffered a lifetime of pain as a result of the experiments to which he was subjected. The result, according to his daughter, was not only that her family was destroyed, but that her father was turned into nothing short of a monster.
1: What have you done to him, you maniac?
0: I'm your number one fan.
2: Don't fall asleep. Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash
3: your brains. What an
1: excellent day for an exorcism. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. We have such sights to show you. Be afraid. Be
0: very afraid. Exploring fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway. Be afraid. On this episode, we take a look at cosmic horror, exploring the monsters we make in our quest to control that which is uncontrollable. Could it be that a world exists that has nothing to do with human cares and concerns? And if so, how might we respond? Ridley Scott's 1979 film, Alien, still holds up as one of the best sci-fi horror movies of all time. It's got everything we've come to know and love about the genre. Jump scares, bloody deaths, claustrophobic spaces, and the baddest of all final women, Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. Oh, and don't forget about that monstrous creature. A killing machine the likes of which audiences had never seen before. The pervasive sense of dread that looms over the entire film isn't the result of any one of these individual elements. To quote the film's tagline, "...what makes Alien truly haunting, even to this day, is that, in space, no one can hear you scream." Like what? Seems she has
4: intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check
0: it out. But it's not because the universe or some other unseen force is conspiring against the crew of the Nostromo. When set against the infinite backdrop of interstellar space, it becomes painfully clear that the universe is completely unconcerned with the unfolding violence, terror, and chaos. Here, there are no gods, only teeth. I figured if anyone knows how films like Alien can be so, alienating, it would be Damien Levesque. Damien is a filmmaker best known for writing and directing The Cleansing Hour, which is one of Shutter's all-time most popular movies. His next project is a holiday-themed monster movie called A Creature Was Stirring. So I asked Damien to give me the inside scoop on what makes for an effective movie in the cosmic horror space.
5: I think the the first and foremost is it's that less is more. You know, it's the classic Jaws story about how, you know, they didn't you don't see the, the shark until 60 minutes in. Well, that was an accident. But, you know, it ends up working out so well and actually, you know, is a is a great lesson to any filmmaker that the less of the monster you see, the better. Right. Because the, the audience is going to fill in the gaps. Um, so, you know, we do that in this movie to make sure that like you you really don't see the the, the thing in all of its glory until the very end. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is like, I really do think that, you know, good creature design is important. Um, Some creatures are just really lame in certain movies and you really try and avoid that. But I mean, like, what would alien be if you didn't have a xenomorph, right? It's the coolest looking monster ever. (laughs) So I think there's that. And then, um, you know, I, I think that you also, just because you have a great monster, you can't sacrifice character and you can't sacrifice story. So like, that, that's that's never gonna be uh, something that you can you can get away from. If
0: you wanna make a great horror movie, you need a great story. There's just no substitute for that. But you also need good creature design. No matter how great your story is, nothing will take an audience out of a film faster than bad special effects or a lame monster. But more important than anything else, whatever you do, Don't show the monster. Damien's absolutely right. Part of what makes Jaws such an anxiety-inducing experience is how long it takes before the Great White appears on screen. He's also right that it wasn't Spielberg's original plan. The production crew kept running into mechanical problems with the animatronic sharks on the set, so Spielberg had to get creative and figure out a way to make a movie about a shark without ever showing a shark. Lucky for him, John Williams was on the team. When you have a composer of that caliber, who needs a shark? All you need is two notes. Something similar is happening in Alien, which was famously pitched as a space remix of Jaws. When Ridley Scott saw the creature from Alien for the first time moving around the set, he realized it would look ridiculous on film. So, like Spielberg before him, he too cut the creature out of the camera's frame and only offered occasional glimpses of it in low light. Viewers filled in the gaps with their imaginations, but it was the sound design that sealed the deal.
6: Oh God, it's moving right towards you. Uh...
5: Move! Get out of there! You move! you Dallas! Move, Dallas! Move,
6: Dallas! Get out! Oh. Oh, no! The way, down way down. Dallas? No.
0: Like the shark in Jaws and the creature in Alien, the monster in the first season of Stranger Things is heard rather than seen, known as the Demogorgon. The creature makes its presence felt through atonal music and dissonant sound effects rather than any visual cues. It is quite literally the acoustic presence of a visual absence. Like Damien said, typically once a monster is revealed in a horror movie, it begins to lose its power. And when this occurs, what was once a nameless, faceless terror morphs into something more embodied, something more human. But a human is precisely what the Demogorgon in Stranger Things is not. Even though we eventually do see it in full, the creature's face is never seen. Not because the camera keeps it hidden from view, but because it doesn't have one. In fact, prior to the moment the audience sees the creature for the first time, numerous characters cite its lack of face as both its key feature and the very reason why they're unable to describe what it is with any kind of precision.
6: He's in danger, we have to find him. What
1: exactly
7: was this thing? It was some kind of animal, you said?
6: Uh, No, it uh, it was almost human but it wasn't. It, it had these lo- long arms and it, it didn't have a face. It didn't have a face.
0: It eventually becomes clear that the Demogorgon is neither human nor non-human. It's something else altogether. It's unhuman. In fact, this faceless killing machine is from a world known as the Upside Down. a parallel world to our own that was never meant for human interaction. As terrifying as it is, the monster's presence is merely a symptom of a deeper imbalance, one in which the world we know is suddenly bumping up against a world that is unknowable. It's a realm that philosopher Eugene Thacker would call the world without us. According to Thacker, who wrote a three-part series on horror, The most disturbing aspect of a series like Stranger Things or a film like Alien is not the bloodthirsty creatures. What's truly terrifying is the appalling truth these stories explore. That the world of human cares and concerns is revealed to be utterly meaningless in the universe at large. Of course, in the wake of the scientific and technological revolutions, most modern people go about their day-to-day lives as if reality itself is centered around humans, In other words, we assume the world we inhabit is the world for us. But in a film like Alien or a series like Stranger Things, we encounter a part of reality that seems to be totally indifferent to humanity. It's not even antagonistic towards us. It simply couldn't care any less. This is what Thacker calls the world without us. The characters in Stranger Things call it the Upside Down, a world that resists any of our attempts to understand, manipulate, or control. Filmmaker and professor Dr. Craig Detweiler is an expert on the cultural significance of film and media. And from his perspective, the fear and anxiety generated by the idea of an incomprehensible world without us reveals a deeply spiritual impulse within the horror genre. It's a spiritual sensibility found not only in cosmic horror and supernatural horror, but also in the work of filmmakers like Ari Oster and Robert Eggers.
7: You know, one of your earlier guests, Scott Derrickson, I think expressed well that... um, Horror is, particularly supernatural horror, is innately spiritual. It is suggesting there are things beyond us. I think where it becomes interesting is whether those things are containable and understandable. And I think with both Eggers and Astor, there's a suggestion like, no, these things are, they're bigger and they're stronger and don't try to contain them and don't try to understand them you will lose and you will be worse off uh which is a, a, a broadly speaking it's a way of saying yes there are spiritual forces and they are bigger and stronger than you are and that's a scary message which makes these truly horrifying films i would say they're not necessarily reassuring the reassuring horror is when you can kind of let the monster out And by the end of it, the monster is contained. A a series like The Conjuring series is trying to say, yes, there are diabolical forces in the world, there is evil in the world, and there are, you know, exorcists, there are ways of dealing with this, (laughs) of putting the genie or the chaos back in the bottle. I find The Conjuring movies less horrifying than, say, Ari Aster and Robert Edgar's movies because by the end of of their films, these A24 smart horror films, it kind of opens it out and you're almost left with, you feel worse (laughs) than when you started. And that's what makes them more haunting. And that's also what makes them more impactful. You Mm. can't shake them off. They didn't just shake you up for a couple hours and then go, no, but see, it's really okay. And here's the tight bow at the end. Mm. In these, it's like, yeah, no, there's no bow. Sorry. Sorry. Not going to tie it up.
0: Certain strains of horror unleash monsters for the sake of defeating them. Father Karras delivers Reagan from demonic possession. Laurie Strode kills Mike Myers. The intrepid kids and IT eventually overcome Pennywise. For most of the humans on the planet who go about their daily lives as if there simply is nothing beyond the material world, It's impossible to imagine the universe being centered on anything but us. And a riff on Thacker again, the presence of monsters like the Demogorgon reminds us that the world is not only indifferent to us, but that the world is and always has been mostly an inhuman world. This is by no means a comforting thought, says Thacker, but then again, neither philosophy nor religion nor horror is meant to comfort. Here then is the horrible truth that cosmic horror forces us to confront. We are not the center of this or any other universe.
7: We're all just swimming in so much. A lot of it disinformation. A lot of it disembodied. Almost all of it mediated through a screen. It's really hard to feel grounded in this world, and to say, okay, I know who I am, I know whose I am, (laughs) I know where I am. We're so rarely there where our body and soul are united in one place. We have a constant transportation device in our hand that takes us out of our surroundings to where we don't even know like how to read a street map unless the thing tells us where to turn. We don't even know what's north, south, east and west. We don't have to. And so these kind of primeval movies put us back in touch with that like very deep survival thing of like, your body is threatened, there are physical forces and you need to summon physical and spiritual force to deal with it. Do you have the resources?
0: Do we have the physical, spiritual or psychological resources not just to defeat the monsters we face, but to navigate a world that is fundamentally not for or about us? That's the question cosmic horror poses. And however we answer, what seems undeniable is that modern people are deeply unsettled when faced with this question because they simply cannot tolerate the idea of a cosmos that is indifferent to them. certificate of deposit account registry service back to the story of the terror dome otherwise known as pennsylvania's holmesburg prison the fertile field of flesh that albert kligman discovered when he first entered the prison also happened to be overwhelmingly black and because these research subjects were incarcerated there were very few opportunities to earn money to spend at the commissary or to send back home or more importantly to use for bail so the money they were paid for participating in kligman's research which was one of their only sources of substantial income, offered them the best chance they had for getting out of prison altogether. The only catch was that they were never told what Kligman was putting on their flesh, nor what might happen to them when he did. In 1971, when Alan Hornblum entered Holmesburg Prison just after graduate school in order to run its educational program, he stumbled upon a scene that would make the Hostel and Saw franchises seem tame by comparison. What Hornbloom discovered was that Kligman wasn't just testing medications for mild skin conditions. Supported financially by sponsors like Johnson & Johnson, Dow Chemicals, and even the U.S. Army, Kligman had been exposing inmates to herpes, staphylococcus, skin-blistering chemicals, radioactive isotopes, psychoactive drugs, and carcinogenic compounds such as dioxin, which is the poisonous substance found in Agent Orange. Some of the more gruesome experiments involved yanking out prisoners' fingernails and stitching parts from cadavers onto their backs to see if they might grow into functional organs. Out of approximately 1,200 residents, between 80 to 90% of the prison population was involved in these experiments. Each of these inmates was physically disfigured in cruel and grotesque ways, but they were psychologically scarred as well. For their participation, inmates received between one to $300. In exchange, all Klickman asked for was their flesh. (sighs) You'll remember my colleague, Dr. David Taylor, from a few episodes ago. He's someone who's written about and reflected on the horror genre from artistic, pastoral, and theological perspectives. So I asked him if he'd given any thought to the connection between horror and our fear of realities that are just too big for us to fathom or control.
1: Maybe I'll put it this way, back when I Wrote this piece for Christianity Day in 2005. I watched countless you know, horror movies. I had artists in our community who were interested in the horror genre, but I'd never heard any Christian help them understand, is it okay, is it not okay? If it is okay, what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And so as a pastor at the time, I thought, well, maybe I can provide some help even though I'm scared of horror movies, maybe I can do the study part. I ended up, of course, watching you know, scores of horror movies during the daytime. And, yes. um, and then after, you know, the watching and the reading, I came to... Well, I concluded something, which I don't have to believe is like the only way of concluding things. But I concluded that, the, that all horror movies came down to th- explorations in three kinds of fear. Uh, explorations in the fear of the dark, the fear of the future, and the fear of the strange. But then behind those, I reckoned what they all had in common was a fear of that which is unnameable and uncontrollable. And so every every horror movie is dealing with something that exceeds our capacity to name it.
8: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and
5: subscribe
8: to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
5: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
3: A few weeks ago, on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post October seventh world. Six thirty a.m. We're we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're and they're going on and on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has
8: nothing to do with this land come come here. Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much?
5: I am alive because I wasn't
6: I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over
3: there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
0: Generally speaking, humans fear what they can't control, whether it's the unknown, the future, or the inexplicable. Which is why our response to an encounter with something like the world without us is so predictable. In order to manage our feelings of fear, awe, and insignificance, we attempt to exert control over this overwhelming reality through science, medicine, or some other technological means. But as the horror genre reminds us, these efforts are almost always ill-fated or self-destructive. Mike Flanagan's The Fall of the House of Usher is a perfect example. It plays as a kind of homage to the work of Edgar Allan Poe, but the connection to its source material is more symbolic than anything else. What the series is really getting at in not so subtle ways is the real-life horror of the current opioid pandemic and how a company like Purdue Pharma, run by a family like the Sacklers, could knowingly destroy so many lives in their quest to amass an obscene amount of wealth and power. It's time.
6: It's time.
0: It's time. The narrative centers on Roderick Usher and his twin sister, Madeline, who made their fortune just as the Sacklers did. Through the development and sale of a pain-killing drug, they knew to be highly addictive and in fact, deadly.
6: Well, I pondered. we
8: and weary. Yes, brother dear. Has it not occurred to you that if these coincidences keep
0: happening, you won't have a family left? Playing opposite Roderick and Madeline is a mysterious character known as Verna, which, in another nod to Poe, is an anagram for Raven.
6: No rays from the holy heaven come down on the long nighttime of that town.
0: Verna, like the Raven in Poe's poem, isn't a supernatural being or an agent of evil and violence herself, but is rather a harbinger of the death and destruction that ushers have brought into the world. Neither good nor evil, Verna is the radically indifferent cosmos that, in response to human suffering, simply replies, never more. People talk a good game, but
6: money where your mouth is, what would you be willing to do? For example, what if I told you right now that you could achieve all the success you ever imagined, all the money, all the power, a
0: lifetime of luxury, comfort.
6: What would you do? What would you give?
0: On a particularly fateful night, Roderick and Madeline make a Faustian bargain with Verna. In exchange for unchecked power and wealth during their own lifetime, they accept that every member of their bloodline will die just before they do.
6: What if I said I could Guarantee that you'll get away with it. And not just that. All of it. In good time, not a lot of time, you'll be elected CEO Roderick. Or Madeline, if you prefer. And I'll sweeten the deal. No legal consequences guaranteed for your whole life. People may try, but you will never, ever get convicted of a single crime. The company is yours to do with what you want. Be altruistic, be charitable, or don't. I just want to see what you do. It's a hell of an offer. Are you gonna say it costs what, our souls or whatever? <laughs> no such thing. For one, and even if there was. You already sold them tonight, one brick at a time. <laughs> no, no, nothing so silly as that. It won't even go on your tab. What if I said you get all that, the whole thing, and the price is deferred? Let the next generation foot the bill. So that's the deal. You get the whole world, and when you're done, at the end of it all, just before you would have died, Roderick, just before you would have died anyway, your bloodline dies with you.
0: And yet... Even though she's directly involved in each of their deaths, she is neither the most terrifying nor monstrous. That designation is reserved for Roderick Usher and his children, each of whom turns out to be as monstrous and evil as the next. At every turn, they respond to Verna's otherworldly presence not by recognizing the error of their ways, but through ill-fated attempts to control, coerce, or manipulate. Needless to say, it doesn't go so well for them.
6: Who are you? Consequential. And tonight
0: is Consequential. Of course, this isn't the first time Flanagan has explored real-world evils in and through horror fiction. In addition to writing and directing a number of well-received horror movies, his previous TV series Midnight Club and Midnight Mass have developed huge cult followings. Along with the fall of the House of Usher, Flanagan's larger body of work now makes up some of the most watched content on Netflix. In other words, all sorts of people find these stories compelling, even folks like New Testament professor Dr. Madison Pierce. Dr. Pierce is associate professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary, and is also the co-host of the Two Cities podcast. She's also a horror aficionado and happens to be a pretty big fan of all things Mike Flanagan. So as a way to get at why such a broad cross-section of people find Flanagan a compelling storyteller, I asked Dr. Pierce to tell me what first drew her to his work.
9: My first encounter with Mike Flanagan was Midnight Mass, and I was really drawn to the subject matter there, but then recognized that he had other series and movies that were really highly regarded. So I started to do a sort of deep dive. So that was my spooky season homework for myself this time around. And I watched the entire Mike Flanagan Corpus. Some of the threads that I find really appealing in him are ways that he portrays the relationship between trauma and horror or horrifying things, uh, the ways that trauma manifests itself as horror. Um, Sometimes there's also this sort of interesting thread in his work about what is true and, you know, or what are external monsters and what are internal pressures, delusions, psychoses, you know, things like that. So I find that really interesting, that all around is just really great character development and lots of um, religious and biblical imagery sort of peppered throughout, too. So in the fall of the House of Usher, where do you think the emphasis lands?
0: Is the evil internal to the characters or does it come from some external source?
9: I think with Flanagan, it's almost... Always impossible to say with certainty the character in the show you could name her the adversary or you know satan or or devil you know the devil or something like that you could identify her with one of these kind of classic um evil figures i like the adversary cuz it kind of holds the tension you know is she representative of their own propensity to vice is she actually yeah some sort of external force that is acting upon them that becomes a especially complicated In the scene with Freddie's wife, um, she says, I don't usually like to intervene so directly. Um, And she ends up basically causing him to ingest the poison that he'd been giving to her, um, to his wife. And so uh, that gives a picture of something very external. With Tamerlane, for example, I mean, her running through her pied-a-terre or whatever, and like smashing mirrors. And I mean, that could be a depiction of her um, mental health concerns and again, vice sort of playing out um in real time. And so, like I said, it's always complicated with Flanagan.
0: In some ways, we're dealing with a group of people who are just monstrous. And if that's the case, then the series is is kind of this cautionary tale of what happens when
4: mm-hmm.
0: in the context of an otherwise cold and indifferent universe, a person goes to any length to establish some kind of control over that reality without any regard for who it might hurt or, or how many casualties might pile up along the way. Yeah. But it also seems like at least for Roderick's kids, their choices are, are kind of limited in terms of what's actually possible in large part because of what they've inherited from him. And that makes me think that like you said it's it's not as simple as, you know, I'm I'm choosing to exert my will to power over reality or I'm not. It strikes me as more like a reflection on on what it's like to deal with the effects of of what I might call
9: intergenerational sin. Do you have any thoughts on that take? I think in a lot of ways it's accurate, but because it's so complex. That it's both the case that the sins of the father affect the children, um, you know, to the third and fourth generations, that we know that uh, the effects of abuse and harm, that they trickle down. They're even they're a part of the physiology of, of people, but it's also the case that that choice matters. And we see this with um, the granddaughter in the, in the show, uh, Lenore. Now she's two generations deep of wickedness, but she chooses to relinquish it. But another thing I found really interesting about the show is um, a question, you know, is related to this question. I mean, the way that Verna sort of sets up this proposition is that they will want for nothing. They have the possibility of having this beautiful, easy life. And of course you could imagine a world in which they have this beautiful, easy life with everything handed to them and they make better choices. The Roderick, he could have um walled up the one man in the basement, made a deal with Verna or the devil or <laughs> whomever, um, and then never sinned again. You know, she goes or he goes and sins no more. He but he knew he would get off <laughs> scot-free. And so he continues to push against the legal system. And I, I mean, that's a clear picture of choice because so often with systemic injustice and various external pressures, we we have choices, but our choices feel more narrow than they should. But this is a man with everything and he still makes the wrong choice. A man with everything still makes the wrong choice. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure I can think of a, a better or more concise way of stating the problem that plagues humanity. That said, I think I've realized, even in talking to you, that I tend to hesitate in using the language of sin. Um, I might call it hubris or, or, or something else, but I really can't think of a better term to describe that that mysterious force that's that's alive and in play whenever we act in ways that are that are subhuman. Ways that are monstrous or or just evil.
9: Yeah. I mean, if you zoom out to um, the broader Flanagan corpus, then I think that monsters almost always are the result of some kind of sin um, or or what we would call sin. You know, he might call it vice or or something like that. And so it's not always hubris, I don't think, um, but it's something, some kind of perceived problem. And I think this is an interesting um, feature of various horror films that um, what could be normal becomes escalated to this uh, um, event with broader significance and monsters, whether um, metaphysically so, or, you know, people who are monstrous, um, you know, they capitalize on that. So you think like, Um, Yeah, I I really love the Scream franchise. I'm a child of the aughts. Um, And so you think of like Billy Loomis. Why is he a monster? His mom had an affair and was treated badly as a result of that. You know, she was portrayed as promiscuous. And so what does he do? He takes revenge. I mean, revenge is a really common motivator. And it's not necessarily about hubris. It's In its own twisted way, it's about justice. It's interesting how often, again, just really normal things become escalated in horror.
0: No justice, or more accurately, in a world where the universe simply couldn't care less about things like justice or the human quest for vengeance, humans are left to their own devices. And when that happens, they have no other choice but to take things into their own hands. And now, for the conclusion to the all-too-true story of the Terror Dome. Decades after Holmesburg Prison was shut down, Alan Hornblum was shocked that no one had exposed Kligman's experiments to the public. So he wrote a novel in 1998 called Acres of Skin, as a way of documenting what took place under the dermatologist's reign of terror. As recently as 2021, and under pressure from family members of those who were affected, the University of Pennsylvania disavowed the research and terminated a lectureship dedicated to Clickman. And in 2022, the city of Philadelphia also issued a formal apology. Following a series of class action lawsuits, companies like Johnson & Johnson have filed for bankruptcy after being fined up to $3.5 billion dollars for the use of asbestos in experimentation with human subjects at Holmesburg. But of course, as of yet, no money has been transferred to any of the victims or their families, many of whom were never the same. For his part, Clickman was unrepentant until his death in 2010, and in fact was convinced it was a mistake to shut down the prison experiments. He famously told colleagues, It was years before the authorities knew I was conducting various studies on prisoner volunteers. Things were simpler then. Informed consent was unheard of. No one asked me what I was doing. It was a wonderful time. Monsters, it would seem, come in all shapes and sizes, and some of the most terrifying and, indeed, most horrific are hiding in plain sight. It's time. It's time. (sighs) It's time. <sighs> with the fall of the House of Usher, Mike Flanagan is explicitly riffing on Edgar Allan Poe, but Poe's influence on the horror genre extends far beyond the movies and TV series that put his writings in the foreground. For example, Poe is also quite influential in the work of H.P. Lovecraft, an American science fiction author whose style of storytelling has become synonymous with cosmic horror. In fact, Lovecraftian horror is now pretty much interchangeable with cosmic horror. In Lovecraftian horror, inhuman monsters do more than simply terrorize the film's characters and startle the audience as they leap into the frame. They also serve as convenient scapegoats for all that plagues the world of the characters. If only they could be defeated, we often convince ourselves, then all would be well. And yet, time and time again, these monsters are revealed not as great evils to be eradicated, but as the products, or byproducts of our failed attempts to manufacture meaning in a meaningless universe. And Stranger Things, the portal to the Upside Down that unleashes the Demogorgon, is opened up not by the creature, but by Eleven, who is herself the product of experiments conducted by Dr. Martin Brenner and the CIA. Mike, I'm
6: sorry. Sorry? What are you sorry for? The gate.
0: i the monster. But Stranger Things is just a, a current example of a long history of horror films that featured out of control scientists or government operatives creating monsters as a means of exerting control over an uncontrollable universe. Think of Frankenstein's monster or Swamp Thing or Jeff Goldblum's The Fly. Or for those of you who are hardcore horror fans, here's a deep cut for you. What about the 1995 B-movie Mind Ripper? where a group of government scientists try to reanimate a corpse in order to make a superhuman killing machine, only to have their creation turn on them.
3: From
6: Wes Craven, creator of Wes Craven's Nightmare, in here, underground.
5: We're on the verge of a breakthrough. (laughs) Breakthrough. You ask me, our friend in there is in a world of pain. His body's accepting the virus. They set
3: out to create the first super soldier, but instead, they unleashed a monster. God damn
6: it, where's the back
3: Wes Craven presents Mind Ripper. Live in horror, die in
1: fear.
0: If anyone knows about the making of monsters, it's Sari Martin Concepcion. She's a filmmaker herself and has an upcoming horror project called The Winemaker, but she also worked for over a decade with Rob Zombie, who's made numerous horror films, including the remake of Halloween in 2009 and the more recent The Monsters in 2022. But before talking monsters, I asked Sari to share about what drew her to the horror genre in general and cosmic horror in particular.
4: There's something kind of fun about that emotional arousal, but not the life-threatening kind that puts you into a real fight or flight state. I like sort of well two things. I like sort of that aspect of that exaggerated human experience like the looking straight into the the void, the very dark the fringes of human experience. I also have been pursuing a sense of an enchanted universe. Mystery, a sense of something deeper and transcendent sort of soaking the world and going on beneath the surface of things. But in many subgenres of horror, that is hinted at and drawn out. And that's something I'm very intrigued by. And as an artist and filmmaker myself, something that I would hope to be able to give as a gift to audiences when I make my own work too.
0: Hearing about what draws you personally to the horror genre makes me think You're a fan of cosmic horror where we encounter this unknowable, incomprehensible mystery and are are then forced to respond in some way. But it also brings to mind a question I, I hadn't quite considered before. If horror films explore deeper, mysterious truths that are often hidden or simply beyond us, how do you as a filmmaker think about writing characters that expose others to that truth when most people would rather ignore it or deny it?
4: Yeah, you see the the truth tellers sort of marginalized. and a lot of time it's like a literally a crazy person, right? Like someone in like the insane asylum or something. this this marginalized voice is, uh, that's sort of that no one wants to listen to. And I think that's just what the folks who are jo- drawn to these genres have experienced. They probably feel like the truth teller in their family you see that play out quite a bit. It's like everyone's pretending things are okay, things are not okay. The reason I was drawn to sci-fi and and horror, I, growing up, felt a little bit like an outsider, a little bit different than the people I was growing up around and sort of looking at humanity, <laughs> the rest of humanity, feeling like a little bit of an outsider. And also in horror, a lot of times you get the sense that that monsters are made, not born. There's often this pointing fingers at like the system that antagonize people who are different to where they almost have no choice but they become monsters.
0: What are some classic examples where you'd say that's a monster that was that was made, not born?
4: These genres evolve as like, culture changes over time. As an example, like in the original Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, Michael Myers just kind of is. And uh, yeah, he just kind of is. There's no explanation for him. He's just this evil force. Um, You know, can you stop the boogeyman? But then in Rob Zombie's remake, and Rob is someone who's very well read about serial killers. And, you know, if you read a biography of any serial killer uh without fail they have the most horrific abusive childhood that you could imagine and uh and so you know rob put puts these things in motion in michael myers myers childhood and that's because we know about that stuff now right like the public starts to learn about these things and then you start to learn get a better sense of what a system is or does to people or whatever and then it changes the genre to genre evolves to sort of create these interesting metaphors for these things
0: Monsters are made, not born. And if that's the case, if monsters in the horror genre are created by an unjust system that marginalizes, oppresses, and silences the truth-tellers, then I wanted to talk to someone with firsthand experience of playing one of those monsters. Not a non-human creature from some other dimension, mind you, but something far more sinister. One of the racist white cops in the HBO series, Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country is a 10-episode series based on Matt Ruff's 2016 novel, which is set in 1950s Jim Crow America. The show is certainly in the horror genre, but it's also a mix of sci-fi, mystery, ghost story, psychological thriller, and family drama all wrapped into one. It's also one of the most consistently violent and gory series I've seen in a while. I can't recommend it highly enough. Here's Misha Green, the showrunner for Lovecraft on NPR's Fresh Air, addressing the storytelling opportunities that horror provides her
2: Well I think that it was for me horror, which is my favorite genre works best for me when there's a metaphor. So it's the idea that something real we then take and make the monster and the monster is actually almost the the relief in it So feeling like, you know, you're going into the heart of darkness as you travel with this family into the heart of America, which is not the South, it's the North because Jim Crow was everywhere. And to... To have them encounter the sheriff, and we know that scene now. We we're now very aware of the violence that happens against black bodies by the police state in America. So to change that, to flip it on its head, and then to have the monsters come out later, to me that that's that's the reason to make it. In a way, defeating the monsters, the witchcraft, that's the thing that allows the the racism and the harder subjects of what it means to be a Black family in America with generational trauma more palatable.
0: Like the source material itself, Lovecraft is clearly a form of social commentary. But to quote Misha Green, it doesn't just pull the slavery portrait off the museum wall and say, look at how bad slavery was. Rather, it draws viewers in through the metaphors that the horror genre makes possible. As it does, it uses the conventions of the genre as a doorway to something deeper for people who might not be interested in watching a show on the horrors of racial injustice. Needless to say, it drew me in, especially when I realized I knew some of the cast. Immediately after watching episode three, I texted Mac Brandt, who plays Captain Seamus Lancaster, a Chicago police officer in Lovecraft. His response to my text was great. Quote, as you watch the show, just remember that I'm a decent person in real life. So the first question I had for him after I'd seen the entire series was simply this. Having played a cop so many times, how do you bring something unique to this kind of role without just being generic cop X?
3: I don't. (laughs) For a long time, I thought I was just lazy and... I just was like, no, this is just what it is. But I have a lot of thoughts about law enforcement and the world of that, right? And so the thing is, is that it is meant to be a block. It's not meant to be an individualized thing. When you call the police, the police show up all in the same car and they get out. You know, you could be dealing with 10 cops, but when they leave, they all sort of are the police. Like, you don't think about it that way. Because a lot of the characters I play are bad, bad people. Yeah. and question people have is like well how do you play a bad character or an an old acting trope which i think is bull is you know don't judge your character like you don't know you're a bad person it's like yeah i do i exist in earth like it's okay to be a bad person some people are bad people the manner mannerisms that i have and the way i act i bring to it I mean there's they, there there's a whole movement of the thin blue line like they see themselves as on the other side yeah. of society as one block of thing they can all be
0: the same so you you play a cop in Lovecraft country but it's not a it's not a realist drama like prison break or a procedural like CSI oh yeah in lovecraft we've got monsters and magic and science fiction but then it turns out you, as a, as a representation of a racist society, are the real monster. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it's like then, not just to play a cop, but to play a monstrous
3: cop. The joke I made when we were making it, and when it came out, I was like, the only difference between bad cop on ABC and bad cop on HBO is one word said multiple times to a person that you shouldn't say it to. Mm-hmm which I had to say multiple times. And the way I thought about it was, it was very much people's experience. And if I played it cartoonishly, it would have degraded people's experience of life, right? Like even to today. Black people's experience with the police, not great. Consistently not great. So if I wouldn't have played it right down the line, not magical, not goofy, not supernatural, exactly what it is, then... It would have it would have devalued that those real experiences people have had.
0: The most disturbing scene is when you you basically cast a spell on a thirteen-year-old African American girl. What
3: do you know about magic?
4: Fantasy books?
0: <laughs> so you and another white cop have her pinned against an alley wall. Yeah you mumble some kind of magical incantation and then you spit on her. Now, I know you're all acting, but you're still on a set doing that and, yeah. and actually speaking those words to another human being. How did you and the others prepare for that and how did you process it afterwards?
3: I went out that night and got real drunk. That was one of the hardest days I've ever had. Lovecraft was an interesting job, and this is a very big answer to the yeah. small thing, but and I'll get back to that, but it was an interesting job because... Like, we've known each other for, you know, a long time. I want to be everybody's friend. I'm loud. I'm out here. I want to be buddies with everybody. I got to that set, and especially on set. Like, one thing I like to think is, like, I might not be the best actor in the room, but I want to be the best guy on set. I want to be the guy you want around. Lovecraft was not that. And it was the first time I had ever experienced it. There were a lot of things happening all at once on, on Lovecraft. But in the world of the show, you know, it's a predominantly... Black main cast, I'd never worked on a show like that. Mm -hmm. It was a Black Mm showrunner. And a lot of the directors that came in were Black and Black women. And then there's me, the white guy, Mm -hmm. and the piece of shit racist that (laughs) the day I have to say these things, like everyone's looking at me. Most sets I'm on, it is my people I identify with, Mm -hmm. and the Black actors are coming into Mm -hmm. those situations. And it was reversed. And it was weird mm-hmm. and it was hard. Mm-hmm. And I did not have an opportunity to hit it off with the cast mm-hmm. because in their process, they didn't want to know Mac. You know, Mac was coming in and doing horrible things to them. Mm-hmm. And so they, they didn't want to know what I was doing outside. Mm-hmm. We got there eventually. But, like, you know, I didn't speak to Jonathan Majors. We didn't work that much together, but I didn't speak to him until the end, until my last night. Michael K. Williams, I introduced myself to him, and he goes, who are you playing? I said, Lancaster. And he goes, oh, man, I I don't want to talk to you now. Mm. As a joke, and then we talked, and then he walked off. It was wild. And so on that day of doing the spell, it was real hard, because I have a daughter the same age, and I was trying to talk to her about my daughter and she she was cool and her mom was there and but when we get at it, we had to get at it. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's like if I half ass it because she's a kid or I feel bad or this is uncomfortable to me, that's it's bullshit. It's degrading what experience you know, these people have had.
5: I'm
0: guessing that was a pretty eye-opening experience.
3: It was very eye-opening because we, we were shooting in Atlanta and Atlanta Metro is a black city. It's a historically black city. I, after the, I think it was the second day I started walking around. I I don't feel uncomfortable anywhere. I'm fine. And again, that goes back to, I'm a large white man. I can go anywhere. And I walked home from set, I like to walk. And so, you know, they're like, hey, we'll give you a ride. I said, "No, no, no, I'm gonna walk back home, back to the hotel. And it was like a two and a half, three mile walk. And I'm walking and I realized, I'm like, ah, shit. About two blocks ago, I walked into a stretch that's, that's not a great neighborhood and I'm, I'm too far in to go back without it being a parent and I'm too far, you know, I can make it yeah. and it's right where all the highways go. And so again, going back to sort of contextual knowledge, I'm like, Oh, I see what they did here. They cut this little st- six block stretch off and now nobody cares for it. And it's, it's sort of a rougher neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I saw about a block up, on the other side of the street, there were like six or nine black teenagers, older teenagers. And I immediately went on edge. Hmm. And and I just, I re- like they weren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. All they were doing was hanging out in their neighborhood. Same that I do, right? They were standing outside. And I immediately went on edge and thought like, I can't go back, because they'll see it. I gotta go. And maybe you know I can make a break for it. Uh, and I, but I started to work through this thing, and I'm like, "What am I doing?" And it's exactly what the set I had just come off of. It was a, it was a very interesting realization that I, what I just felt all day on set, I am now doing to these kids hanging out. It was, it was
0: very interesting. I know you, but our listeners don't. So it's probably important to point out that you're not a religious person at all. In fact, you're an atheist, and we've talked a lot together about religion and spirituality over the years. Yeah. And yet, this show has a lot of religion and magic and mysticism in it. Yeah. I realize this is probably a pretty loaded question, um, but since you and I know each other, I'm guessing you're okay with me asking it. But basically I wanna know, it's one thing to play a racist cop, but as a person who identifies as an atheist, What's it like to play a cop who has quasi-religious, even magical powers?
3: I found it more interesting because there's another layer of it, yeah. but it's if I read the book too. They talk about it in the show. In the book, they explain it a little more, but all it is is that it's magic. It's Christianity, but not Christianity. It's all they're trying to do is figure out the language of Adam, which if you say it simply, it's like, Adam talked to God with, with ease, right? And was able to request all of the things. It's not Harry Potter magic. All they're doing is manifesting like a shred of, of creation. And when you think about it that way, it's like, yeah, that's just power. And they're all just questing after this, this power, which is all in my mind, religion is. If you're already a cop and already a, you know, a sergeant and already have guys under you and you're already a head of an organization, a, a sort of shadow organization. Like, yeah, that's all, it's all the same. It's all just power. The magic that happens in the show, for me at least, it's just a continuation of what I'm doing. I'm just trying to have power over everybody.
0: I'm just trying to have power over everybody. That is a Lovecraftian line if I've ever heard one. In this subgenre, we're exposed to at least two kinds of monsters. The ones that are created by a system of oppression and injustice, and the ones who create monsters through their calculated monstrosities. Mac's character is a bit of both, which means that even in cosmic horror, the scariest characters are rarely the inhuman monsters. The most terrifying characters are the inhumane institutions and institutional representatives that try to convince everyone not only that everything is okay when it clearly isn't, but that the radical injustices and inequities in the system are simply the way things are. In other words, the most insidious kinds of evil are so pervasive and long-standing, so baked into the operating assumptions of the system and its various bureaucracies, that they are quite literally invisible. And in Lovecraft Country, as the shocking and nightmarish spectacle of monster-on-human violence plays out against the backdrop of the ever-present bigotry of America's past, present, and alternative present, it becomes clear who the real monsters are. Of course, those of us who benefit from this system might find it easier or more comfortable to suppress or deny or otherwise ignore the ways we participate in these horrors. But that's exactly why we need to attune our eyes and ears to see and hear the truth-tellers who are willing to expose the lie of our own self-deception. Truth-tellers like Mac, an atheist artist who plays a racist cop in a Lovecraftian horror series. Christians are often guilty of creating monsters as a way of exerting control over what feels like a world out of control, as a way of managing their fear of the other. But as Lovecraft Country reminds us, there's something far worse than a monster from another dimension assaulting us, or a monster that we have created coming back to haunt us. The horrible truth we'd rather not face is that, in the midst of what we perceive to be a cold and indifferent cosmos, we have become the monster. Worse yet, we don't even know it. It makes me wonder if that might be exactly the point. Unknowable, untamable monsters will always be with us. So the question is not so much how we defeat those monsters, but how we relate rightly to that which stands outside of our control. Or at least that's what my colleague David Taylor thinks.
1: Every horror movie is dealing with something that exceeds our capacity to name it. And if we can name it, then maybe at best we can be in right relationship with it. At worst, naming is a form of control. I mean, you could say it's a way to manage our fears or to muzzle our fears, but I think that's like a lesser accomplishment. And I think like if you could aspire to something better than just managing, but somehow becoming at peace with the things that are unnameable or uncontrollable. Like the, the four beasts in the book of Revelation. I mean, that's like classic horror right there. They're untameable. There's no harness that we're gonna put on those creatures but somehow to reckon with the path, with with the possibility that we can live at peace with the reality that these bi- beasts will exist forever and that there will always be beasts in the ocean beasts in on the earth and beasts above the earth you know maybe they're nameable but they're never like tameable and so in whatever way that horror helps us to either go on the inside you know in um, these uncontrollable, unnameable, untamable forces in us, right? And then there are the horrors that exist in other humans. And then there are the horrors that exist in the physical world, the cosmos, and then beyond the cosmos, right? That's always where the kind of the metaphysical stuff comes into play. Whether it's taken seriously or not, there's always sort of this tacit agreement that perhaps, you know, if I'm a true agnostic, a, a genuine agnostic, agnostic with integrity, I'll at least reckon with the possibility that there are metaphysical forces.
0: Cosmic horror leaves us with no other choice but to admit that an entire realm of reality exists that stands outside our ability to understand or control. It's just too big for us. Not only is it uncontainable, uncontrollable, and incomprehensible, but in an important sense, it has nothing to do with us. We can rail against this reality or or simply refuse to accept it. But in doing so, we create monsters of all shapes and sizes. In some cases, we may even become the monsters ourselves. But there is another way, a far more challenging way. It's to live at peace with the monsters within and without, to realize they will always be with us. It's to accept that we are not the center of this or any other universe, and that's just as it should be. In other words, we can learn to fear rightly. As Eugene Thacker says, this is by no means a comforting thought, but then again, neither philosophy nor religion nor horror is meant to comfort. So until next time, be afraid. Be Afraid is a production of Christianity Today, Uncommon Voices Collective, and Brim Film at Fuller Theological Seminary. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producer and graphic designer is Steven Scheidler. Produced, edited, and mixed by TJ Hester. Music by Jeremy Hunt and Kohaleth. Written and hosted by me, Cutter Calloway.